This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I think anytime you're looking to buy any kind of real estate that's, that's still, I, I still consider this real estate that would be like mostly owned by mom and pops. You really have to think through your management game plan, especially if you're going to jump into C-class and definitely if you're going to do D-class. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's up, guys? This is Jonathan Farber, host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. This show is all about achieving financial freedom as fast as possible so you can do whatever makes you happy in life. For me, that vehicle was real estate, and it's how I achieved financial freedom at 27. If you want to know how I got started, my journey is presented in a YouTube video posted in the show notes, and I post daily in our private Facebook group about my favorite topics and day-to-day strategies. I appreciate you guys being here, and let's get started. Oh, by the way, reach out if you ever need help. I try to keep my calendar open to talk to anyone that needs it or has any quick questions. See you guys. Guys, talk to you later. This episode is sponsored by Infinite Road Destinations, the smartest short-term rental property management group I know, and the group that manages my properties. This is a company that's very close to my heart, run by two of the smartest, most attentive people I know, Claire Rosenberg and Alex Brashears. Claire and I first met when we worked together at NetApp, where she was a top performer and rose crazy fast in the company. And Alex is just one of the most active, genuine people I know in the real estate space. The two of them together bring a blended background of project management, software design, and extensive experience with automation tools and virtual assistants. Through these experiences, they optimize any property to deliver a hands-off experience to owners while delivering the highest occupancy and highest daily rates possible. You guys know I would not recommend anything to anyone in this group that I do not fully endorse or think that is the absolute best product, and this company is that. And like I said before, this is the exact company and people that manage my Airbnbs. If you don't believe me, here are a few of the other tools and services that come along with the team. Listing optimization, guest support and approval, communication and reservations, key exchange and management, dynamic pricing, welcome kit creation, listing advertising and marketing, vendor management, including cleaners, maintenance, handymen, runners, and monthly property reports. To learn more, check out shorttermmadeeasy.com or email info at shorttermmadeeasy.com. And on the forum, just mention that you heard it here or mention my name. So give it a try. You have nothing to lose and they offer a satisfaction guarantee. And I assure you guys, you will not be disappointed. What's up, guys? Today, we have an awesome episode with John Warren. This is actually John's second time on the show. And we just didn't have enough time in the first episode. So we had to do a part two. He is based in Chicago and currently has 62 apartment units. He is a real estate agent closing about 15 million in sales per year. And his investment group specializes in helping investors get started in two to four units, specifically house hacking, but really anyone that wants to get in the game for two to four units. And John's just a great guy. Like it's a fun conversation. He keeps it really light. He's not a guru that tries to make things complicated for no reason and has a great way of explaining kind of his day-to-day and how other people can kind of follow his footsteps. And he's just a pretty funny dude. So we always have a great time catching up. The main learning I had from this show was how to do your first syndication, if that's something you're interested in. 
John has tons of real estate experience, but he's doing his first syndication this year on a, I can't remember, either 20 or 22 unit, but um, he's done JV deals or partnering with people in different ways, but this is his first syndication. And we kind of go through all parts of it, like how he is getting started acquiring the deal, how he found the money, how he analyzed it, what his plan is to get the units kind of um, in better shape and increase rents, but basically all how-to stuff for how you can, if syndicating something that you want to do, especially as a beginner, or maybe take a progression from the two to four unit space into something bigger that maybe could be a little bit more commercial grade. So really kind of helpful in the sense of how-to for syndication. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of that. Today's tangible tip. You guys know I'm a productivity nerd. Uh, I've been playing around with Chrome groups, which is basically a way to just batch Chrome tabs within groups in your browser. Kind of hard to explain, but if you play around with it or you just right click on your Chrome bar, you should see an option to start a new group. And what's cool about it is you can basically just drag tabs into different groups based on category. So like I keep one open at all times. It's just like day-to-day -day essentials. So for me, it's like Spotify. It's my Notion to-do list. It's like my logins for different accounts. And then I'll have a different one that is maybe stuff related to the podcast or content creation or YouTube. And it's just a really easy way to not have 20 windows open uh, or manage all these open tabs we all have open all the time. So I've been finding it really helpful. Curious what you guys think, but the tangible tip is Chrome group. So I think you guys might get some fun out of that. Uh, without any further ado, awesome episode today with John Warren. All right, John, what is going on, man? We had to do a part two. And this even just came uh, after about 10 minutes of talking about everything going on. And like, I felt I just had to hit record. Like we got to just continue the conversation. For those that don't know, John Warren, he's been on the show before based in the Midwest Chicago region and uh, doing a lot of cool stuff in real estate. Also kind of balancing between the W2, a real estate business and a growing kind of side hustle and also just helping other people get in the game. So uh, John, maybe if you could just give us a quick blurb background if people hadn't seen the first episode of who you are, but uh, first off, how are you doing, man? How are things going today? Life is great, man. Life is great. <laughs> Keep it busy. Um, just had a birthday. So I feel me, you're older, which is pretty crazy. Happy birthday. Um, like we, yeah, thanks. We, we talked about, we just um, started my first syndication. So we're raising money for the first time, growing, you know, at 62 units, looking to jump to 82 units. So yeah, it's crazy, man. But so many things going on right now. It's a lot of fun. Dude, let's just jump right into it. That was, that was the thing that, I mean, from last call we didn't have enough time to just cover well like we never do but but specifically with you there were a lot of open items that i remember thinking wow this would be great to do a part two so why don't we start with the syndication and also i i said that when we were just talking before hitting record that the way you're doing it and the size that you're doing it i think is going to be interesting to a lot of people because the way i see it a lot of times people that come on the show or you hear just you know like social media they're doing hundreds of units and it's a little bit discouraging for beginners that they see someone doing 400 units and it's like how I can't do that. That's way too much. You know, like I, I would like to maybe start with a smaller unit count. So can you tell us a little about from a high level, what your first indication is, and then I'd love to go into it. Yeah, for sure. So it's a 20 unit vintage walk-up building in Cicero, which is one of the areas that I target here. Um, you know, it's probably about 12 minutes from the house. So it's really close to where I live. Um, solid C-class market, beautiful building. I, I love these corner buildings in Chicago, like all over Chicago, you'll see these buildings built in the 30s 20s 40s you know they take up the whole corner they have you know 18 to 22 apartments they're super efficient you know they're there's no yard the grass that you cut is like 
you know, two little strips of grass by the street. Um, they're just great buildings. They generate a ton of revenue. So this particular one is really, really interesting to me for so many reasons. I mean, I could just talk to this building for an hour if you wanted, but I actually know two of the previous owners, which is kind of crazy. When I looked up the tax record, one of my clients owned it in the eighties and nineties and did a lot of work to it. So it's interesting, you know, you're, you're kind of getting a piece of history, which is kind of fun. Uh, and this particular deal is, is a really appropriately sized deal. What I love are buildings that are kind of right on the cusp of being able to get agency debt, which like you were saying, it sounds, you know, really fancy schmancy, right? You have to have a loan balance of a million dollars. That's really what it comes down to. And then Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac will give you these ridiculous loans with terms that you can hardly believe um, that blow conventional loans out of the water. Mm. So I've kind of made a business plan out of buying these buildings. These corner buildings work perfectly for that because you buy them and they don't quite qualify because they're not, not say that they're poorly run, but people don't keep records. They're kind of mom and pops. And you buy them, you keep good records, you get good P&Ls, you drive the net operating income higher, and then they qualify for like a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac small balance loan, and you can get all your money back or most of your money back, the Burr strategy. Uh, at the core, it's the same thing, right? Value-add apartment investing. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really exciting. And you're asking, you know, kind of why we're going the syndication route, because I've done JV partnership deals um, several times, I think four times now, where you bring in you know, two people, guy, gals, whatever, and they, they each put in some money and structure it different ways. But syndication is a way to really use other people's money to grow very, very quickly. Um, there's obviously a lot of pros and cons, though. And that's, you know, you can kind of talk about some of the pros and cons there. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I really think it's becoming more accessible too to regular mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Okay, why don't we, I would love to just start with kind of the high level of how you found it, and then the funding, and then basically even just who's involved, how much, you know, money's being kind of placed by who and, and like just, you know, the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, at a high level, this was actually in the MLS. So that's, what's funny is that here in Chicago, people always say the MLS has no good deals. And yet I, I've bought most of my buildings right off the MLS and I sell buildings off the MLS to other investors. It's a great way. Just, you know, list it on the market. Um, now it's super competitive. I put it under contract without having seen any of the units. There's no showings. I, I wrapped it up immediately because you, you have to kind of know what you're doing. Otherwise, if you wait and analyze it for two weeks, it's too late. So yeah, yeah. I guess first of all, it was on the market and we, we tied it up right there. And how are you comfortable enough? Because some people listening to this might think that's not possible to get a deal under contract without seeing it. So what gave you the confidence or what did you need to do or have happened to get that under contract without seeing it? So the last six and a half years of my life put me in a position where I'm ready to do that. I, that's the short answer. There's no <laughs> shortcut to this, nor should you necessarily go to like random markets you don't know and put things under contract sight unseen. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, Berwyn and Cicero, I've been investing in this area for a long time now, and I know the tenant base, I know the, the towns, I already know what the reports, you know, the violations are going to be when I look at these buildings. So, and these are, these are towns that I work in as an agent all the time too. So I'm literally on the ground in these towns every single day. And I guess the second part of that is how do I feel comfortable putting something under contract um, without having gone through all the apartments and things like that. It helps that I own almost an identical building. I own a, a corner building in Berwyn that I bought in 2018, we got renovated it. So mm. in that building, we did the plumbing, the electrical, the roof, the windows, the porches, those annoying Chicago style porches. I mean, we just did about everything to this building. 
Hmm. So when I look at these buildings, even from the outside, I know 50 to 60% of the story already of what's been done and what hasn't been done on the building. And I can guess quite a bit just from local, local market knowledge. Got it. And what do you need, I guess, just from like a PL or number standpoint to, to make an offer? Because again, very different than like a single family home where you can just calculate ARV and you could be kind of rough with it and you could lock it up and then walk away, you know, after a walkthrough and seeing the condition. But obviously apartments are very different in the sense of needing to know what the property generates to know if it's under market rent and then kind of getting an idea of what the repairs are needed to push rents. Or was this just totally mismanaged? I guess, like, can you talk us through how you understood the value add portion of it? Yeah. So I think that's the tricky part for anybody that's looking to get into this space right now. One of the problems is, you know, if you read all the blog posts, they say you should get the NOI you should know the market cap rate and you should buy it based on that. And then you get into the real world and what you find is right now, everything is really hot and you really don't have time to try to do that kind of analysis. If you do, you will spend the rest of your life trying to get into the game and you'll never buy one. And that's the tricky part. You know, it's like the chicken or the egg. So I know pretty close to what this thing is going to generate based on how it's currently managed. I wouldn't call it mismanagement. I would just call it like a mom and pop style management Mm -hmm. where they don't lease up. They don't push rents aggressively. They probably don't screen tenants the way that I do, but they're most likely collecting 95% of the rent. You know what I mean? There's going to be late payers, but they're, what they do is they put in place, uh, they actually have like an on-site manager, maintenance person, like a couple, um, and they speak Spanish. It's a very high, you know, Spanish speaking area. And that couple probably does most of the work that the owner doesn't want to do. And um, they keep the lights on. They do a lot of the maintenance on site. That's not how I typically run these buildings. I'll, I'll have my own maintenance guys outside and I don't cut all kinds of weird deals with people, you know, so that I don't have to go to the property. I'm, I'm okay going and, you know, and I'll have my team go there. It's fine. So mm-hmm. for me, I know what it can generate at hundred percent occupancy, fully leased up with everything fixed. And I know what it's probably generating right now based on, again, just local knowledge that I already have only these types of buildings already. And then I know kind of where I'm overpaying. I mean, I hate to say it like that, but you, today, in today's day and age, you will overpay a little bit based on how a building is, is operating in order to get the, the opportunity to do the value add, which may sound crazy to people, but that's the reality. Nobody is, is selling, like buildings aren't selling truly on a NOI. There's kind of a floor at what they'll sell at if they're distressed. And so you just have to kind of get to know that and again, I do brokerage too, so that helps, right? I have access to a lot of data mm-hmm. uh, and I and I have brokered commercial deals and things like that. Mm-hmm. So like in smaller buildings, you might see like a price per door. Um, mm-hmm. Like in this area, you, I bought one earlier this year that sold for 50,000 a door and that's like unheard of. Most things trade at like 60 to 70,000 a door in this town, even if they're kind of poorly managed. Got it. So you're basically just to confirm, you're, you're making an offer based on what, like like a middle ground between realistically what it's operating at today, but also what it should be. But um, I guess just within that too, like this is kind of really in the weeds here, but like, how are you analyzing this? Is this a spreadsheet? If it is, where did you get it? Did you make it yourself? Did you buy it? You know, cause I think yeah. I remember this was something I struggled with a lot was people are saying, you know, you're making offers based on what the property should be able to do. But I just found that to be very, you know, it's, it's a lot of guessing and without six years of experience and complicated, found it, found it to be very complicated. So just, could you walk us through like how you do that analysis? 
On smaller buildings, I think the spreadsheet that I'm using in this one is overkill. So I have two spreadsheets. Like when I work with clients buying like a residential property, we do use a spreadsheet. We talk about pro forma rents, things like that. I mean, turning around a three unit isn't that hard. You know, you have two or three rent, you know, you three renters, you know, you move them out, you get new ones, you're done. On a bigger building like this, um, I do have a pretty complicated spreadsheet. I definitely did not build out. Happy to share. I, I bought it from the Michael Blanc website, the That's Michael really Blanc uh, syndicated deal analyzer. Yeah. Really yeah. And it's um, sometimes still overkill for me, to be honest with you. I feel like it takes so much time to get the input in. Sometimes you can, you know, you can get too far in the weeds if it's a smaller deal, but for this, it's perfect for a syndicated deal, which is what it was designed for. Yep. Okay. Got it. That's the same one we were using. And like, again, it's funny though, like even you could get a handle on it compared to what the other ones out there are, but even like the training videos for that video, we've talked about this in the podcast. They're so old that like, they don't even help you yeah. necessarily get to offer price, which is the whole game of this is to try to figure out how to get an offer out quickly. So anyway, just curious there, um, any tools or like maybe step-by-step -step stuff that you think about when you're trying to do research to know if these units are under rent and then how much repair is needed to bring them up to market rent. Yeah, that's interesting. This, this goes so much back to your strategy, right? So if you're one of those investors that invests in say like three or four different markets, I don't know how you get to that level of knowledge because that's not how I invest. Like I invest hyper locally right in my backyard. I also do brokerage in this area. I mean, when you talk about getting comps, Normally, my comps that I'm using in my brain are the most recent units in the same town, in the same style building that I just renovated. And I'm like, oh, cool. I just rented that two-bedroom. Like in Cicero, I did a, a couple two-bedroom turns, and we got 1175 1200 and 1200 for two-bedroom, one-bath uh, apartments, heat included. So for me, I'm not necessarily going to like rentometer and you know throwing a dart at it. I'm just going back to like, what did I just get in my other buildings, and how hard was it to get that? And what kind of tenant did I attract with these finishes? Um, so for me, I know that in my market, if I do, like for instance, a two-tone paint scheme goes a long way, like a nice grayish wall. Um, I use Revere Pewter, if anybody wants to steal my color by Benjamin Moore. <laughs> Great color, gray color. Um, I know that certain vinyl plank floors really sell well. Like I use this um, khaki oak vinyl lure from Home Depot, buck 89 a square foot or something. That stuff, man, tenants love that flooring. I mean, really, it looks really nice. It's not that expensive. Things like that, you know, I use a cheap granite um, countertop, not that expensive. Uh, it's like a Luna Pearl is the is the name of the, the finish. You put that in there and I get some used stainless steel appliances, boom. Like mm. it, it looks like a million bucks and we get really, really good rents and good renters in these areas. So that's kind of the finish quality that I put in. I do a pretty nice product when we have a turn. I'm not... Mm. Um, you know, you hear some people talk about workforce housing and it's like caulk and paint, paint, white, caulk, clean. That's all we do, you know, and, and that's the game plan. For me, it's normally a heavier unit turn. When it's turn, we put some real attention into the details and try to make a really nice product. Um, even thinking through, like uh, talking with some of my buddies that do this too, like we're going to start doing USB outlets, for instance, which costs an extra few dollars in some of the areas, but like, Ooh, you can plug your iPhone right into the wall. Awesome. You know, I mean, things like that. Yeah. It makes a difference. Little stuff that might actually make a big difference. Um, what are you seeing for your ballpark average kind of cost to turn a unit? That is tough because it depends on what you're doing. And I really break out 
you know, when I'm doing a bigger building, I break out common area elements from the unit turn, which I think is one of the tricky things people talk about. So that's like hallways like, you, and like mail rooms or even like windows. Okay. Windows. Right. I mean, I'm buying a, you know, 90 year old building. Am I doing the windows or not? The windows to me doesn't really factor into the unit, although it can factor into the, obviously the living of the unit, but you might buy a building and you have to do all the windows. Like one of these buildings, the vintage building I bought in Berwyn, we did 170 windows, you know, that was a monstrous job. And it made a huge difference to how the apartments show wow. having all new windows. Um, it wasn't fun. It wasn't cheap, but it was totally worth it. Mm-hmm. So w- when I turn a unit for me, f- like a floor and paint, if that's all we're truly doing, um, it's, you know, in the three to four grand range mm-hmm. to turn a unit, if Got we're it. getting into heavier turns though, you know, you start getting into these old bathrooms. Like what are you doing with the tile? Are you saving it versus, you know, gutting it? That's where it gets tricky. I think most of my turns end up quite a bit more expensive than that, just because of the market I'm in. We we probably see between six and ten thousand dollars, depending on the scope of the turn. You know, if we're doing a kitchen remodel or we're doing like a gutting a bathroom, you know, because a lot of times we want to gut that bathroom because the plumbing fixtures are no good and it'll actually save us on the operations on the other end. Mm-hmm. So you get in and you change the old two handles to a single handle, for instance. You know, put a mowing single handle in there, you get parts for. Mm. Um, changing all the shutoff valves for the plumbing, potentially even putting copper pipes in, in some instances where your pressure is getting low. Cause we have a lot of bad plumbing in Chicago. It's, you know, it's old right. end of life. It's right. been end of life for decades. <laughs> How do you think about that? You said the building is 90 years old. How do you think about making sure that, you know, you're getting, you're aware of any big pending CapEx things or either getting them handled before you take ownership or just making sure that you're ready when they do happen. I think when you're doing a bigger deal, you have to underwrite for upfront CapEx. So I actually mm-hmm. separate out in my spreadsheet. Like some people will just do, you know, like 5% maintenance, 5% for CapEx as a standard kind of screening tool. And that's great for your first, you know, fourplex. That's fine. That's probably enough level of detail because you need to, you know, not be stuck in analysis paralysis forever. Um, and people do get stuck there too, mm-hmm. to their detriment, I think. But on bigger buildings, I break out the upfront CapEx items like, you know, what's the age of the roof? Do we need to do the roof in the next five years? Do we need to do porches, which is a big one in Chicago? Um, a Chicago style exterior porch probably runs the neighborhood of like twenty to $30,000 per porch mm-hmm. that you have to do them. And when you have to do them, there is no option. Like you can't dodge and weave. You're hiring an architect and you're hiring a porch building company to do it. It's no joke. And all the back doors have to be bolted shut. You know, it's crazy. Like they're literally ripping the entire second entry off your building. It's wild having lived through it. Um, I break all that out, right? Tuck pointing, um, common area hallways, you know, um, what else do we do we look at? Electrical and plumbing are obviously big ones. And not just electrical and plumbing, but, you know, in these plaster buildings, do we have to make cuts in the plaster to run the conduit? Because Chicago is one of the few places left in the world that uses conduit, which is a whole nother story. So we can't use any kind of flexible, easy wiring. Everything has to be hard pipe like it was 100 years ago. So you have to know those things up front and budget for those appropriately so that you can bring enough money to the table up front. Otherwise, what you do is you steal all the cash flow from your building trying to, to feed the beast. Mm. Um, you really can't, I don't think it's smart to buy a lot of buildings where you're using from the cash flow from the building to pay for the upfront CapEx items. That's a really bad strategy. Um, you can do it once, but as you keep stacking them up, it just turns into a nightmare. Got it. All right. That's a good segue then into the money. So can you maybe walk through the numbers of the deal um, and yeah. what, what you're bringing to it, what other people are bringing to it, just so people can kind of conceptualize how this gets done. 
Yeah. So this deal is under contract for just under 1.3. It's like 1.295 million. Um, we're going to be, the total investment is going to be just over a half million. So, and when I say the total investment, so we're going to bring 25% down to buy the building using a local bank, but then we're raising about 9,000 per unit for reserves and unit turns. So like you were asking earlier about unit turns, this building is pretty unique because a lot of the heavy lifting's actually been done, which is kind of weird for older buildings, but it's got copper pipes throughout most of it. Um, it has furnaces, not a boiler, which is awesome. So you're not going to have that big CapEx hit where the boiler goes out and you have to spend 60 grand. The roof is operational. I won't say new, but it's, you know, operational. We can, it's a flat <laughs> roof. So they're never new, even when they're new. Um, but tuck pointing is in good condition. Windows are in good condition. Like this is very unusual for this style building. So we're going to be able to put the money we raise and the money we put into the deal into the units, which is the most impactful place you can put it, which is pretty awesome. So that's what, yeah, the whole thing is going to be just over a half million that we're putting together, um, which, which is cool. It's, a, it's very achievable because mm -hmm. I've done this before with partnerships and other I have on the general partners side of it, we could do this deal as a JV deal. Like if, if the syndication part didn't work out, we could just buy it and operate it. So it's mm -hmm. cool. It's like dipping your toe into the water, you know, see if it's warm enough for you. Totally. A hundred percent. So, um, that's really cool. So since this is your first syndication, how do you think about then how much money do you need to bring to the deal? Like what, what is your raise number in your head? I don't know if that stresses you out or you think you can do it easily or, you know, what it feels like. Can you just walk us through that of like your plan yeah. for how much money it is and how you're going about putting it together and, and how much you're raising versus how much is your own? I'm not stressing too much about it. Like I said, because the way we structured this one, uh, my partner and I don't need to syndicate it necessarily. We could just buy it outright. That helps. So we're mm -hmm. definitely going to put some money in. I think most people, it, it makes you feel comfortable if the person that's the, the general partner, the operator, if you will, is putting money into the syndication. That's probably a warning sign, I would guess, for a lot of people. Like, if I won't invest my own money in this, why should I invest yours, right? Um, so to, to your answer, how much we're putting in, I mean, we're probably going to put in between 10 and 20% of the total. I don't know, 50 to hundred thousand. Yeah. It kind of depends on what we end up raising. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of how has it been raising actually so far, a lot of people have asked me why I didn't start earlier. <laughs> they, they're like, we've been waiting for this moment. We can't believe you never have done this before. I'm like, Oh, that's good to know. So I've got a lot of interest already um, for my network, which is kind of cool. That is cool. And then from there is just a matter of, okay, like, here's how much money we need. Here's where you sign and then just wire the money. Like, can you just walk the listeners through like what that, what that actually looks like? And, and again, is there a minimum for each investor or how is that? Yeah, no. And I'll be honest with you. We're still working through this for the first time. So you have to get an attorney to write this up, which is still in progress for us. Mm -hmm. So that'll be done by the time this podcast airs. Obviously this whole thing will be over. This is a, what's called a 506 B syndication, which is I already have to know the person that's putting the money in. So I can't go to the general public and solicit funds. That's, that's a huge thing about this. Um, so to answer your question, there's, there's not like a true hard cap minimum, but there is going to be a point where it's not worth it anymore to like, I, and you never want to take somebody's last $5,000, right? So we're looking probably around 25,000 as the minimum, not hard capped, but around there. Um, what was the second part of your question? Is it how, as far as the function of the raise. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, minimums and, and all that sort of stuff. We're using um, this software that I'm happy to plug. It's pretty impressive called Invest Next, which is kind of in startup phase, from what I understand. Um, and, and it does a lot of the back end for you. 
where where you can get all the money wired there and then they handle all the back end accounting stuff in in house and then you can pay out the distributions through the software as well so it's pretty cool um, and it also has like a deal room and essentially it allows it's software specifically designed for syndications and for smaller syndications which is pretty cool hmm. um, and like before we were talking about i have a small mentoring group if you will mastermind group that we put together of people like me that are in that 50 to 100 unit space mm -hmm. where we're, we're trying to grow but we have lots of problems and we're trying to figure out solutions for them and one of the other guys i'm happy to give a shout out who you should have on here joel florick um has kind of been a mentor to me in this he's done two of these small syndications before mm -hmm. so i'm able to just sort of borrow his team and run with it mm -hmm. And what are you guys? So, okay, I'm trying to think. Did we miss anything? Maybe in just like the money part of the deal? Did you say how much? The, the was, only other thing is how much you have to put out. There, there's a bit of risk at the front end of this. Like, if you're going to do a syndication, one thing you should know is you're going to be out, let's say around 20 grand if things fall apart. So, you, you got to pay your, your attorney. Mm -hmm. And so far, what I'm seeing from syndication attorneys is that it costs around, let's just say, just, just a little under $10,000 to do a small syndication. So mm -hmm. like I'm seeing 8,500 to 9,500 being the price point that's kind of being hawked um, to do what they call the private placement memorandum. And, you know, my knowledge of that is now about as deep as yours. I mean, it's this big, scary document where they tell you all the ways that, you know, you can lose money essentially. And then the other thing you have to do is you have to set up two entities from what I understand, which is one that holds the property where the limited partners who invest with you where their ownership interest is at and then one that's the general partnership and again i'm not an attorney and this is my kind of my first time going through this but that's a pretty standard setup from what it sounds like from having talked to a couple of these um attorneys yeah but there's a little bit of upfront cost in other words so again like let's say you only have ten thousand dollars in the world to your name you probably can't dip your toe in yet until you can risk losing say like you know fifty thousand dollars and it'll be okay Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's the one tricky part about this because there's a, you're not gonna lose 50,000, but there's some upfront costs that you can't recoup if, if the deal doesn't go through and that's uh, huge. And I guess, are you, so now you're talking about, I guess a little bit more of like the due diligence period, if you're under contract. So can you maybe just walk us through what due diligence looks like on this deal? What, what you need to do in however long you have to feel comfortable to either go forward with that hard cost or not? That's tricky, right? And this one's actually been one of the trickiest ones I've been involved in because we, we got there for our inspection and they only showed us five units. And it was clear that they were trying, they were thinking about how to market the property if I pulled out. So it was like, oh, that's not good. Um, so that was tricky. So yeah, I mean, in Illinois, it all follows the contract. So I think one of the, one of the things I'm really fortunate to have in my side is that I'm a full-time broker. I have a real estate team. My attorney, Anthony, we work together all the time. We closed together almost 50 times last year. So, I mean, I have him on speed dial. I have all his paralegals on speed dial. They're hundred percent on, on my team and on my side. So, you know, due diligence in Illinois is probably different than other places. I don't know. I've never really, I bought in Indiana. It was like the wild, wild west. There's no attorney. It's just crazy. Um, here, your attorney really runs the show once you're under contract. So they, they're sending all these big, scary letters back and forth. We're still trying to collect documentation. I mean, it's we got one Schedule E from 2019. We have no bills yet. We have a rent roll with no names, no lease expirations, you know, no no proof that people are paying. So it's early still for me in this particular deal. Um, but that's common, unfortunately, in these like mom and pop style buildings, you know, that the 22 unit that I bought, 
uh, that we closed on in December it was a JV partnership deal. We had very limited documentation. Like you'd laugh, I could send you all of it. It's like six sheets of paper. Um, the rent roll was written by the attorney. It was, it was just a joke, man. Leases were missing information. So, you know, some of it again is when you're, when you're getting into this game, you just have to know that like the, the stuff it's not institutional grade doesn't have like third party professional management. You have to be able to fill in the, the blanks a little bit on your own on the due diligence and feel comfortable moving forward. If you're getting a good deal, a lot of times the, the good deals that are really stable are run by more professional operators who will give you all this data. Like if you buy a building for me, you're going to take pay top dollar, but I'll keep sure I'll give you bank, you know, bank records. And uh, we use Appfolio to manage. So sure. You want a rent roll? No problem. It takes me two seconds. Um, mm -hmm. No problem. Leases. We have them all. It's all there. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the things when you're buying value add, you'll read like a blog post. It's like, you should get these 27 items and you should review them thoroughly. It's like, yeah, well, there's a reason these people are selling an asset for cheap. You know, they may not know how to run it. So that's the thing to think about. Totally. Is there anything else on this, this 20 unit? I'm trying to think we went over how you found it. We talked about how you funded it. We talked about the repairs, the business model, due diligence. Is there anything else on it that maybe we haven't talked about yet that's important or maybe a beginner could get some value out of understanding? I think anytime you're looking to buy any kind of real estate that's, that's still, I, I still consider this real estate that would be like mostly owned by mom and pops. You really have to think through your management game plan, especially if you're going to jump into C-class and definitely if you're going to do D-class. So like being here in Chicago, South side of Chicago is where most out-of-state investors look. It's you, you make your money through management there. The numbers all look fantastic on paper, but you will literally die in some of these neighborhoods if you go there too late at night. I mean, so, you know, again, just kind of speaking broadly about buying apartment buildings, you have to know how you're going to manage them. Mm -hmm. I am totally okay being hands-on. In fact, I've pivoted away from third-party management towards um, vertically integrating or building out my own management solution that just works for me for properties that I have ownership interest in. That's the route I'm going. And the reason is I believe in these C-class areas, you can just make incredible money on cash flow if you manage right, which is mostly a, a function of good tenant screening and then customer service to your tenants. And I find most property management companies just rot at the customer service part, right? Like even on bigger pockets, you can read about, you know, people that poo-poo their tenants all the time, like, oh, the dumb tenants, this, that. I mean, most of my tenants are really nice, responsible people, and we don't have a lot of problems that are tenant related. It's mostly like building stuff like, oh, this mm. my bathroom ceiling is leaking. Oh my gosh. Or, hey, there's a mouse in the building. And like, you know, your response to that is how um, it actually indicates whether you're going to have vacancy or not. Respond correctly to that mouse in the building and you're going to have a happy tenant that knows you respond to them. Just say, oh, dumb tenant, like whatever. They're going to leave your building and that impacts your bottom line because you have a unit turn, you have a lease up fee or, you know, or you have vacancy, whatever. So that's, that's the other thing I think is a key component of this, this whole apartment game uh, mm -hmm. management. You have to know how you're going to manage your building. So let's talk about that for a sec because, yeah, we can't just breeze over that when we're talking about managing a building or just buying a building. So I, I remember yeah. in, in the last call we had, there was a little bit more emphasis on self-management. So what is your plan with managing this property? Yeah, so, I mean, I am technically self-managing still, right? So I'm building out my own little management entity, but it, unfortunately, running most parts of that ship are still me. 
which is fine. But as you hire, you know, people to, to work for you, if you go this route, and again, this route's not for everybody, right? There are third-party management companies that can do this. But um, the first thing I had to hire, I was accounting. And I got really lucky. My sister-in-law is a CPA and she's interested in doing some work for me. So I think property management is like 60 to 70% accounting and clerical work. Um, and then there's the, the boots on the ground part, the maintenance part, which I already had in place, not working for me directly, but, you know, like local maintenance guys, handyman, if you will, um, that work for me. And so that's the other component they had to figure out. But the part I'm going to have to hire for is going to be the true property manager who does leasing and, and does some of the day-to-day, -day, like, um, you know, maintenance, taking the maintenance calls and things like that. Because, you know, so most people's freedom number, if you're thinking from the, like the, the fire movement style is you, you need 50 to hundred units to actually live for free. But that comes with a problem nobody talks about, which is when you get to 50 or 100 units, now you actually have a real job to manage it, you know? <laughs> yeah, so it's like a chicken or the egg another thing. Job. Like, totally. Yeah. You're like, oh man, I'm going to get 50 doors and I can retire and live on a beach. Because you have, when I, when I bought my first building, which is a four unit, I mean, still to this day, the management load is not very heavy there. The really nice tenants there. I've retained three of the original four tenants. Um, the only guy I lost passed away. Like literally I've had no turnover except wow. for natural turnover. So that's what awesome. That it's like, what do you, what do you credit to that to? Because I feel like most people, they, they maybe unintentionally, even like you said, some property managers, they're just bad at customer service. I don't even, I mean, think it's intentional in most cases. They're just so overwhelmed that when they get a request, it's like, I'll get to it. And they never get to it. So like, how do you not let that happen? No, that's a great question, man. I mean, a huge part is uh, area the property is in tracks the right kind of tenants, which is something that's kind of tricky. You know, early on you're chasing that spreadsheet, but this deal on a spreadsheet after the cash or refinances I've done shouldn't perform the way it does. But what I find is I don't have a lot of problems because I have really nice people there. And I went one whole calendar year without a maintenance call, which is mm. kind of astounding for a building. Um, it's to, to, I guess to, to the second part of your question, how do I not let you know, balls drop. That's getting harder. I'll be honest with you. And that's why that 50 to hundred units, I think is, a, is an inflection point. Um, I might write a blog post about some book someday or a book or something. I think it's, you could call it landlord hell. You know, your, your first building or two, you, you spend a few hours a week and you're like, this is awesome. You know, you're just doing some bill paying, maybe have the occasional plumbing problem. When you get to like 75 doors, you always have a plumbing problem. Like I have people that call me like, what do you do oh my gosh, I've got water coming out of the ceiling. I'm like, yeah, I had that twice last week. Like, that's just, you know, whatever. The tub backed up, clogged, whatever. You just go in, cut it out, fix it, boom, done. And they're like, are you kidding me? This is a huge problem. Like, no, this is normal. This is routine maintenance. But as you scale up, um, you can't cut as many corners, I guess, is what it comes down to. And most of the time when you're self-managing, you are cutting corners you don't even know about. So as I've started to build out like a, a better property management solution to become more professional, uh, I realized like how much accounting I need to be doing, right? Like tracking basis in your properties. Like, I don't know how to do that. I don't even know what a basis is. Mm. My CPA does. I don't know. But this new system can track it. Cool. I mean, like, you know, repairs versus, uh, what is it? Depreci depreciable items. There's all these things you got to know about. Again, you don't need to know it for your first building. But as you scale up, you have to either have a good third-party management company that can take it off your plate, or you have to learn the business and kind of build out your own solution. So. Yep. hundred percent. Um, John, is there anything else that we haven't covered? I feel like we kind of just deep dove on that deal, but it's just really interesting. Cause like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, like it's, 
I don't want to say it's not easy, but at least it's a little bit more, I think, digestible for people that are trying to figure out how do they get started in multifamily. And it's just something that you could actually see. So um, anything else you want to just cover, call out, talk about? Yeah, you, you didn't talk much about the financing part of it. I think financing is a huge part of real estate. And it's one of the interesting things, right? I, I know probably a lot of your listeners do the one to four unit space, which is just such a nice space because it's so easy. You know, pretty much any lender can lend on your three unit or four unit. It's just, there's a conventional loan product or a FHA product that makes that easy. Where it gets super tricky is that like, I don't know what to call it, five to 30 unit space or 40 unit space, depending on your market, right? Your price per door. You're going to have to lean on a local bank quite a bit. And it, it feels like the wild, wild west, man. If you're used to one to four unit stuff, like the bank, they'll, they'll give you a term sheet, but you get to closing. You don't really know what you're paying even until you get to closing. Sometimes it's very relationship based. They're holding that money. If they give you a 25 year note for 25 years in their mind, and it's so different. But then there's that sweet spot where you jump above that to the, to the agency debt, which is non-recourse, better terms, it's just an, it's an amazing tool. And I think a lot of people could benefit from thinking through that. A lot of my clients even say, oh, I really want to get into commercial like you do. I want to get a six unit. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's okay. I actually think in a lot of ways, one to four is a great space. And then you can get over that million dollar loan balance mark. That's an even better space. There's kind of a weird hole in the middle though, where I don't know if it always makes as much sense as people think. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I guess you call it like the 400,000 to a million dollar building. It's tricky. The financing is tricky. The terms are not as good. So yeah, that's, it's, it's an interesting topic that how financing impacts like your investing decision. And that'll be market specific too, right? Depending on what your prices are in your market. Yeah. So interesting. Um, where do you recommend people go to get educated on this stuff? Cause like we did talk about even some of the, the not so fun stuff, it's really not in the books or it's not really like publicized people are kind of showing more of the, the highlights so where would you recommend someone to get started for education on this i feel like no matter what market you're in doing networking is probably the most important thing you're going to do i went to a lot of networking groups early on and sometimes i wasn't even sure where i was going to be honest i would think oh, i'd rather be home with my wife and my kids tonight you know but your net worth truly is your network when it comes down to it. And as you meet people who are a couple steps ahead, you don't need to meet, you know, like you were, we were talking earlier, the Grant Cardones of the world or the Joe Fairlesses that are like doing these monster deals that you can't even fathom, right? Like $400 million deal. What you need is if you're in a fourplex and you want to buy a sixplex, you got to meet a local guy or gal who's like already done that and ask them like what bank that they're doing that at. And if you want to jump from that sixplex to a 20 unit, you just need to meet a handful of people locally who are doing it because they're going to know the people you need, the lenders, the insurance people, the roofers. I mean, so that's really like I, earlier this year, I created that little group for myself. I had a handful of people I knew and I, I told them, I was like, selfishly, I just need to talk to other people who are, you know, at or maybe a couple steps ahead of where I'm at. And I want to get to know your network and I'll share my network because we're going to need each other, you know, bankers insurance people, lenders, talk pointing, snow removal, like all the stuff that comes up day to day, like roofers. Oh, my roofer's not available. I need a roofer now. Who do you have? Like, that's kind of, to me, the network has been huge for me. And that's where I've gotten most of this information, not on, I don't really know you can learn it all online. There's mm -hmm. kind of a grittier side to it that you need to talk to people to learn how it's actually going down in your market. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I'll just say this, even, even doing a podcast, like there is stuff that people, no matter what, will just not openly talk about on a public podcast. You know, like it just, it's either personal or it's regarding stuff that they're not comfortable talking about, or it hasn't closed yet, or it's just proprietary. Like there's a lot of reasons. And it's, it is funny. Like you can learn a ton from the podcast, but you know, there is always conversation that happens that is different than when it's publicly recorded, that that's where a lot of magic happens. And I wish it wasn't the case, but it just kind of is what it is. And it, I think will always be that way just because people have private conversations and talk about stuff that they're not so comfortable sharing publicly, you know, and like, I like to get as close as we can with people to keep it like maybe close to that line. But even in my life, you know, there's some things I try to make as public as possible, but you just can't. So it's got to be a call of a mentor or maybe even a coach or someone that can actually walk you through a situation that, you know, I also think a lot of stuff, if it was said or taken out of context, it would just be totally misinterpreted. So that's why a lot of people don't say it, but it is kind of what it is. You know, if you're talking about an eviction, things are tough. And sometimes you have to make tough decisions that it wouldn't really sound so good on a podcast, you know, or just like a lot of things like that. So I don't know, that's where I go with it. So I totally agree that sometimes you just need to either do or talk to people and you can't learn all of it from books and podcasts. You can learn a lot of it, but there's almost like another layer that just never gets talked about. I think the, the mentoring thing, you know, you read these blog posts or, you know, you kind of podcast, like how to find your mentor, most of the mentors that I've had, I didn't think of them as the mentor when I was like first meeting them or working with them. In a lot of cases, they're people that I was actually hiring for a service. Like my first mentor, Josh was my, he is still my residential go-to lender. Like when I do a, if I buy a house, he's my guy. Yep. So good. Um, but he was a couple's head of me, right? He owned a bunch of things and that's huge. Um, mm-hmm. And same thing with when you're looking at um, kind of you, you always need a person who's one step ahead of you. I think if you try to find the person who's a billionaire and you're like, I'll buy you lunch, it's not going to work. You know, they're not going to be interested in lunch, but if you're already working with somebody, they're a couple steps ahead. That ends up being who your mentor is. I think in a lot of cases. Yep. Gotcha. John, is there anything else or actually, I think I've already asked you that what's the best way for people to connect with you or if they have a personal question to kind of go one-on-one or have kind of that, you know, yeah. behind the scenes conversation. Shoot, shoot me an email. Okay. So shoot me an email. Yeah. I mean, my email is first initial J last name, Warren broker, J Warren broker at gmail.com. Shoot me an email. I'm always up for a phone call. You know, I think that it's, it's fun talking about real estate, like you said, and it's always fun for me to help other people grow. It's a fun business. Yep. All right, cool. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on, man. Um, as always, just dropping tactical knowledge that people can start using today, tomorrow, whenever, and just go take action. So appreciate you coming on, man. Best of luck with the 20 unit and uh, looking forward to part three already. Yeah, man. Thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. All right. See you later. Thanks, John. Hey, you millennial millionaire. Are you looking for help getting to the next level in real estate? Are you looking for accountability and strategy to achieve your goals? If so, Jonathan is now taking on one-on-one students and opening a few spots in his private mastermind. It's affordable and welcome to everyone. If you had any questions or think you may need a boost, send Jonathan a message on Facebook or email at johnjfarber at outlook.com. 